When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. Come you masters of war, you build all the guns, you build the death planes, you build the big bombs, you hide behind walls that you hide behind desks, I just want you to know that I can see through your masks, you that never done nothing but build to destroy, you play with my world like it's your little toy, you put a gun in my hand and you hide from my eyes, and you turn and run farther when the fast bullets fly, like Judas of old, you lie and deceive, a world war can be won, You want me to believe, but I see through your eyes and I see through your brain like I see through the water that runs down my drain. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the Freewheeling Rob Kelly, and joining me once again is Pod Dylan five-timer, John Glenn. Hi, John. Welcome back. Thanks, Rob. Yeah, five times, huh? <laughs> I think you're more than five times at this point, but after after five, I stopped counting. You've got okay. the official honorarium of five-timer. So, uh, yeah, we're here to talk about Masters of War, uh, one of the giant jewels in the Dylan crown. Of course, it's from the 1963 album, The Freewheeling Bob Dylan. Um, now, this song has, ever since Bob you know, debuted it, it's never left his repertoire. Uh, he's played it a lot of times at concert, and there's many different versions, and we can't possibly cover them all. But we are going to focus on two. Of course, the original version from the album, and then a version from the 90s, a live version, which is near and dear to my heart. But we'll, we'll get to that in, in a few. So, John, like, why did you want to talk about this one? I know you love this song, right? I love this song. And I think that, you know, a hundred, I think Dylan's music will last forever. And I, what I think you know, let's say like 50, 100 years from now, this will, like you said, it will be one of the crown jewels of his repertoire. It is a powerful song. I think it's one of the reasons he won the Nobel Prize. Um, and I, you know, it's such a powerful sh- song for such a young person to write. And um, I'm, I'm always amazed by it. I always go back to it. I, I mean, the context of it a little is, of course, he did that first record, the Bob Dylan record, and that basically went nowhere. No one really cared about it. You know, I mean, it was a big deal because he was the first guy from that that circle of folk singers of the Hootenanny people from the New York in the 60s to get a record deal in Columbia Records on top of it, like this big right. label. And, and nobody really cared. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of great material on there, but it didn't set the world afire. I think it sold a couple of hundred copies, I think, according to legend. And so when it came time to do the second record, I think Dylan knew he had to make a count. Uh, He had to make a statement. And, you know, boy, howdy, because, I mean, virtually half the songs on that record are things that are still being sung today. I mean, Blown in the the Wind. I mean, you know, you open a record with Blown in the Wind. Hard Rain's going to fall. Hard Rain's going to fall. Don't think twice. It's all right. I mean, and then you've got this song. I mean, he really was committing himself to uh, putting out the best material he had on this record and said, I, I love this song because it is so different from the tone on a lot of the other songs. I mean, Blown in the Wind is, of course, a protest song, but it's gentle. And, you know, and it's sort of like it's refrain. It's kind sort of asking this question. And this one is an angry young man record uh, song. This is like, I am pissed off. I am not going to try and see things from your side of your side of the aisle. 
you know, you're terrible and I'm going to keep telling you how terrible you are over the course of like eight or nine verses. Yeah. And it's um, if you think about that first album had uh, two originals, right? It had song to Woody, uh, right? Song to Woody. And then I forget the name. I forget the name of the other one. Yeah. Yeah. So and then the way freewheeling is laid out. You, this is really the fourth original song that he released because he got blown in the wind is the first song and then girl from the North country, which is a standard folk song. And then he put this song as the third, as the third song on the album. Uh, he recorded it early, you know, he wrote it earlier. Uh, but this was a, this, this was a, for a lot of people, I think the, you know, the third song on the first real Bob Dylan album that people purchased. Right. And it must have just they must have said, I like to think that they said, this is what everybody's talking about. This is this is somebody who has something to say. And just the the powerful image of a of a young man standing in front of a mic with a acoustic guitar and saying these proclamations, this anger. It, it's very powerful. And it's very American, too. I think that's, um, you know, it's. At that time in the early 60s, he really captured that kind of protest feeling. Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, he had his antenna finely tuned. I mean, of course, most people think consider this an anti-war song, and it isn't strictly an anti- I mean, of course, who the hell's you – know, I think you're a sociopath if you're not anti-war. But, I mean, it's not an anti-war song. It's an anti-military industrial complex song. Right. And it's, it's really more about the people that profit from war than it is the people that participate in it. And if, we have to remember that uh, Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, had delivered his farewell speech to the nation as president, warning people of the buildup of the industrial military complex less, I think not even two years before this. I mean, this was his sign off before president Kennedy assumed the the office. I mean, that's that had to linger pretty heavily in young Bob Dylan's mind, you know, as like a 19 year old hearing this guy, hearing a guy who was a general in world war II warning the nation that we could be suckered in by people who want to continually have war because it's profitable. And you know, it's, it's a very specific thing, but yet that, I think that's what partly gives it its 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 power. It's more than just I don't like war. It's no, I don't like you because you get rich and fat off of the deaths of all these people. I know, and something occurred to me as I was thinking about this podcast, and I never thought about it before. This song was written in well, according to Clinton Halen, it was written in late 1962. He started playing it live in January. Didn't record it until. Uh, April of 1963, right? Something then, like that, yeah. I got to think, I was like, well, was the, were we even in Vietnam at that time? Like, we, I associated so much with the Vietnam War, but it occurred to me planning for the show that, well, the Vietnam War really started gearing up in the late 60s. You know, that's when the draft started. And so I looked up a timeline of the Vietnam War, and we were barely in Vietnam at that time. I mean, it was a very secret war at that time. Right. We were sending advisors. Right. And, and uh, soldiers were dying and the advisors were dying and everything. But it really woke me up to exactly what you're saying. This isn't really a Vietnam War song. It is, right, like you were saying, the, the business of war, the, the profiteers, the bullet makers, you know? Right. And that's something that we're st- – I mean that, that's an ongoing 
theme in America. I mean, good Lord, that was a, a thread in uh, Star Wars The Last Jedi, for Pete's sakes, you know? I mean, yeah. about the idea of people that, per- that that profit off of the blood and death of war. I mean, again, in the song, I love the, the sort of um, insistent <laughs> instrumentation of it. Like, it's the same kind of tune just played over and over and it's it's meant it has that kind of droning feel to it as as the singer just keeps piling more and more imagery on top of you i mean the song goes on he sings you fasten the triggers for the others to fire then you sit back and watch while the death count gets higher you hide in your mansion i love the way dylan sings that he's like you hide in your mansion as the young people's blood flows out of their bodies and is buried in the mud You've thrown the worst fear that can ever be hurled, fear to bring children into the world. For threatening my baby, unborn and unnamed, you ain't worth the blood that runs in your veins. Yeah, there's that word worth, right? It comes back to money. Yep. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he says, so how much do I know to talk out of turn? You might say that I'm young. You might say I'm unlearned. But there's one thing I know that I'm younger than you. Even Jesus would never forgive what you do. And then he wraps it up with, let me ask you one question. Is your money that good? Will it buy you forgiveness? Do you think that it could? I think you will find when your death takes its toll, all the money you made will never buy back your soul. And then the, the final verse, he yeah. kicks it up even a further notch. And I hope that you die and your death will come soon. I will follow your casket in the pale afternoon and I'll watch while you're lowered into your deathbed and I'll stand over your grave till I'm sure that you're dead. <laughs> not, not a lot of uh, not a lot of nuance there no not a lot of ambiguity and, <laughs> and you know and as much as i like his ambiguous songs and his symbolist uh beat poetry i keep going back to this song because he is so straightforward and he's so declarative i mean i hope that you die <laughs> i mean that is for, i mean that is such a powerful thing to uh, to say to someone and then and the whole image of him like standing over your grave to make sure that you're dead you know like it, it is uh it it's such a bold statement for a, a kid really you he's know 21 years old 22 yeah yeah and 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 he's absolutely right you know i mean this is my this is my politics and um you know i agree with it and it's still relevant to today right yeah, and we're still dealing with people. I mean, we are now living in a in a world of perpetual war. Uh, right. We've been in Afghanistan. We've been in Afghanistan for so long that people are now old enough to serve in it who are not alive when it started. That's how long we've been in Afghanistan. Wow. And you can argue whether we should or shouldn't be, but I would argue, you know, that Anytime we're in a war that lasts 18, 19, 20 years or something has gone horribly wrong and we've just fallen into a, you know, the, the, this trap of like, well, you know, it's too late to stop now. Well, yeah, it is. no, it isn't. You can always stop it. And so that is – and again, I, I go back to the context of this record. When you think about the other songs, Blown in the Wind or Don't Think Twice are so much more nuanced and so much more gentle even when they are – castigating somebody don't think twice it's all right you know which, which we haven't covered yet on the show is you know has that tone of like well you know didn't didn't go that well but don't think twice it's all right but this one is just such a kick in the uh, kick in the nards to anybody and like i said it, it's it's kind of like a punk record not in the sound but in the attitude the attitude was yeah i'm young what do i care i you know i don't care what you say you're wrong and that's it and i hope that you're i'm gonna follow your casket 
You know, <laughs> like it is it is as big an F you as you could have said without using that kind of like four letter language in 1963. Yeah, and you're right to compare it to like the nuance songs. Like Don't Think Twice It's All Right is a mean song. He's he's you know, he's not very sensitive to the, the woman that he's walking away with. But it's it's you know, it's nuanced. This is zero nuances. And you get the feeling he wrote it thinking of just staring at these generals mm-hmm. and, and, you know, and uh, just confronting them. And 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 he and he already responds to the criticism. He's saying, well, you might say that I'm young. You might say I'm unlearned, but, you know, I'm, I'm wiser than you. Yeah, so he he knew that it would shake some shakes. It would rattle some bones and cages for people. How old were you when you first heard this song? When you first had, did you hear this version? Was this the first one that you're familiar with? Yeah, I guess I heard it on Biograph. Um, okay. That was like the first. My my parents had a, a cassette copy of Biograph, and I would just keep plugging it in, and that comes on uh, in Biograph. Um, and then eventually I liked it so much that I, would, I bought the individual albums. So I already knew it when I had heard Freewheel, you know, when, when I purchased the cassette of Freewheeling. But it's uh, – and, and you're right. Like, like the, music, the music of it is that drone. Yep. Uh, a friend of mine who plays guitar calls it like a one-chord song. <laughs> he plays it, you know, you kind of move a finger around to get like the different uh, sounds of that one chord. Uh, but it's a driving force. It's a, it's almost monotonous, almost like a ballad of Hollis Brown or something like that. And the lyrics just keep pushing it and pushing it to that final stanza where he's he's he's, you know, he's wishing death upon these people and doesn't look back. Yeah. Interesting. You compared it to ballad, ballad of Hollis Brown, because like that's a song where I feel like I get it. Like I get the monotony, I get that it's meant to be punishing, but to me it's like it's I I don't want to say that song is unlistenable because that's not what I mean, but it, to me it's it's very unpleasant to listen to because it is so brutal and dark and dank. And this this doesn't I don't have that problem with this song. This 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 to me inspires like the righteous anger, uh, and that's what it, it, to me it's much more kind of I hate to use the word, but it's entertaining as a song more than Hollis Brown. Hollis Brown, I feel like, all right, he's going too far with this. Cause I just, this feels like um, eating your vegetables. This song is just so, you know, brutal, but this thing is, again, it's kind of entertaining. It's, it's the language that he uses is inventive. And again, I like you mentioned um, that he answers his critics within the own song. You know, he already gets to that. I mean, the way that you mentioned the, the one chord kind of over and over again, you feel like this song could have gone on for 10 more minutes, with just more verses with that same, tuned to it I and mean, he just chooses to stop it when he does it's already a relatively long song for for the time but it has that feeling of like well this could you know if he wanted to just keep haranguing people he could because the tune fits you know fits the the, the tone of what he's trying to achieve yeah and and i think what helps keep it entertaining is the imagery that like i see through the water that runs down my drain i mean that image never gets old and the whole idea that i can see you know i see through your masks uh, is also very powerful, right? And he, of course, and he brings up you know biblical imagery, which he loves to do in his songs. He mentions Judas, he mentions Jesus, uh, you know. Uh, and then again, it, it's the, the the switching back and forth of the old timey stuff, and then the modern stuff with, with hiding in your mansion, 
you know, which is feels kind of like a modern thing. And you talk about fastening the triggers for others. So, I mean, we all know people said that they can, you know, hand the weapons off for somebody to fight and then go take off. I mean, again, he was that was and that was a big issue with the Vietnam War was that it was a war mostly fought by poor people. Right. People that didn't have the means to get out of the war as opposed to the previous war. I mean, you know, Bob is old enough to remember the Korean War. He was only a child, but he's old enough to remember it. But that was a different kind of scenario. And I'm not going to suggest one war was, quote unquote, better than the other. But the the notion of it being unfair uh, to a society, to a, to a particular social strata of Americans, that really came forth in, in Vietnam. And again, it's it kind of reminds me of its... Um, it's all right, Ma, where he has the line about, you know, the president must have to stand naked. He wrote that in 1965, but when he sings it in 1974, it has a whole new meaning. And so right. I would imagine if you were a singer coming up and you hear this song in 1963 and then Vietnam is raging, you're like, well, he wrote this whole – this is already written. I could just do this. It, it perfectly fits the time I'm living in. Yeah, and in, all right, in, in that song, It's All Right, Ma, he, he has a line about masters. Uh, the wise man makes the – what is it? The masters make the rules. Right, for, for the, the wise men and the fools, yeah. So he's almost reckoning. It, what other anti-war songs does he have? He's got John Brown. John which Brown. Is, is in the, which I, I love that song. I like, yes, I like John Brown a lot. But again, another song that is reveling in its non-moderateness. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. John Brown yeah. is just straight ahead. You know, here's your lesson. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Here's your here's your bitter pill. But I really like it because I just find the story so involving. And then there was with God on our side, which yeah, that's a song that I feel like is eating your vegetables. Right. <laughs> you know? I, yeah. When we did that on the show, I think I even mentioned that. I was like, yeah, this one, I, you know, I, I appreciate yeah. what it is, but it's it's I don't know, it was not terribly fun to listen to again because it, it goes on a long time. This song is I think it's about like four minutes and change, like a little under four minutes. And to me, it gets out right at exactly when it should. I mean, like I said, it could keep going on, but it doesn't. It wraps it up after he does the finger pointing thing for a bunch of verses. He then, you know, he saves the best for last again with that really haunting series of images of being in somebody's funeral march and being happy that they're about to watch them be lowered into the ground. I mean, that has to be the last verse. Yeah. How would you follow up that verse? Yeah. (laughs) But are there any other uh, anti-war songs? I'm trying, you know, I mean, I guess if you ask Bob, I mean, you know, he would say some things are, I mean, there's lines in Tombstone Blues about, you know, send him out to the jungle. I mean, that seems to be an anti-war line. Of course, you would call the song that. But yeah, no, he's been, you know, he doesn't, you know, we've seen, he doesn't like things getting pinned down. Uh, I mean, here he admitted that this was a song about the military industrial complex. And we do need to mention in the, in the, you know, to be complete, uh, the tune is not exactly original. And you want to mention that about where, where this, the tune actually comes from? Yeah, because I, I, I really like the original song. It's based, it's based, uh, the arrangement, the musical, uh, the music of it is based on an old folk song called Nottingham town, which, and it was performed. It became famous by Gene Ritchie who was a much starker, she was like a true folk singer. And she was singing, I think, a lot of Appalachian songs. And it was generally regarded that she, she introduced that song to many of the Greenwich Village folk scenes. And when Dylan started playing this song, everybody just kind of was, every all the other folk singers were basically saying, well, you stole that from Gene Ritchie. And Gene Ritchie actually sued Bob Dylan <laughs> with an undisclosed amount for stealing her 
her uh, arrangement. Um, the song Nottingham Town is very interesting. Yeah, a, a lot of times when you look it up, they say it's kind of a nonsensical song, a, a nursery song. But it's also a very uh, it's a very haunting song for me from from my interpretation of it. It's about a person returning to uh, their town. Uh, at, presumably um, they were away at war or they were on some adventure. And when they returned to their home village, it was a ghost town. And he in the person, the narrator of the song can see the ghosts walking around. And uh, if you look at it that way, I think it's it, there's you know, it's it it kind of it's part of the whole tradition, tr- folk tradition that Bob Dylan was at was that right there. Right. I mean, he I think I mean, like I said, but he ended up settling financially with Gene Ritchie. So, I mean, he's copying the fact that he did steal the tune and he he did that a lot. He still does it now where he takes tunes and reworks them and adds his own. I mean, his word. Those are his words. There's nobody doubted about that. But, yeah, uh, I mean, he took it took the tune and applied it to something. He did the same thing for Scarborough Fair where he took that tune and added it to different songs. I mean, that was something that you kind of did in the the folk process. Um, This song live has been performed 884 times. (laughs) It was uh, last performed October 2016. Um, And so this was something that's never been dropped from the the repertoire. It was performed at the 30th anniversary concert, which I've mentioned I've been at. It was sang by... uh, Mike McCready and Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam. Uh, they, they did an acoustic version, and that's a re- and you you when I saw that that's a really great version of it. You could really tell that uh, Eddie Vedder was really digging into it because he really I like the way Eddie Vedder sings. I like the timbre of his voice, and he really brought again that kind of young, youthful energy. Although I guess Eddie Vedder is probably in his late thirties by that point, but he really brought that powerful, angry young energy to uh, the acoustic version on, on, on at that concert. But yeah, this is a, this is a song that Bob has done electric. He's done acoustic. Uh, there's multiple different versions of it. Like I said, so it's, you know, it's, it's never far from his repertoire. Yeah. He's, he did it acoustic. He's done it with big bands. He, I think he, he you know, in the 1978, like with this big band, he was doing it. And uh, I love the version. And my, one of my favorite versions is the 1984 real live version. Right, uh, it's on that record, right? Right. I think that's a smoking version. And he he is angry again. And no matter no matter who covers this song, they're always the lyrics and the music of it. Just it it it, it just conveys anger, righteous anger, and. Um, you know, even if there's not a war going on, or it seems like the, you can't sing this song without without conveying that kind of real anger and frustration. Right. Well, I mean, unfortunately, it's it's evergreen. You know, it's never yeah. it's never really not relevant. I actually, I, although I, I say that, but the version that we want to talk about, 1991, is uh, not as angry. <laughs> <laughs> well. I will get to that in a moment. I should I should be specific when I said it's never left the repertoire. That's not exactly true. He performed it live in 1963, and then not again for 15 years. Uh, it was he didn't perform it again until 1978. Uh, so there's a big 15 year gap there. But then it's been that way ever since. Like you, you you go and you look at all the other times. It's 78, 81, 84, 86, 90. So he's never dropped it at that point. But yeah, there was a 15 year gap where I guess he was a little skeptical of the protest music that he was doing. And so, but eventually he became, it came back around, but yes, now that you've mentioned it, uh, I do want to talk about this other version 
uh, which is really near and dear to my heart. And that is the version Bob performed at the Grammy Awards in 1991. Now, again, I need to give a little bit of context for this. I had really discovered Bob in 1990. As I mentioned, that was during my first year at art school and and some of my roommates, uh, one of them, actually, Dan O'Connor, had the, the Traveling Wilburys record. And I was like, wow, this is I really like this record. And I like the Dylan song the most. And that was really the beginning of it. So now you're talking February of 1991. My fandom for Bob is less than a year old, or maybe a year old, maybe a little more. And this is, Bob Dylan was turning 50 in 1991. That was a big deal because it was like the baby boomers were like, oh my God, we're mortal. You know, like, that's a big deal. We're going to, what's it like that Bob Dylan's 50? And this was my first opportunity, I think, if memory serves, to see him on television, like live. I don't think I'd had, he's not on TV a lot. And so I think this was the first thing I had had a chance to see him as a performer, as a live performer, since I had become a fan. So I was super excited about this. So uh, he, he gets, uh, he's there to get a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. And uh, he, uh, the host is Gary Shandling. And by the way, uh, you'll be, you can see all this on YouTube. The entire segment is on YouTube, which is where you saw it, John, because you hadn't seen this before, correct? No, I haven't seen it. I okay. heard you mention it before. Right. I've watched it many times. Right, <laughs> right, right. It is fascinating. Right. So Gary Gary Chandling introduces Jack Nicholson, and Jack Nicholson comes out. And, of course, Jack Nicholson and Bob have been friends for, I guess, a, a long time. And J- Nicholson gives this amazing speech, really well written about finding quotes from Bob talking about himself and very complimentary, but in a sort of smart way. And, of course, um, uh, then, they, then they go to a clip segment and they show some clips of Bob from over the years. And then uh, Nicholson does the the bit that opens every episode of Bob Dylan, which is probably my favorite intro Bob Dylan has ever gotten, which is, you know, when I was a kid in Jersey, uh, everybody was a hoot or funny or something. We call him a riot. Well, ladies yeah. and gentlemen, this guy's a riot in more ways than one, Bob Dylan. And the curtain parts... And there is Bob with his band looking like a bunch of gangsters. <laughs> Look at it. They're all got the fedoras and these hats. And Bob rips into this, I'm going to use this word again, this punk-ass version of Masters of War, which is... Incomprehensible. Incomprehensible. <laughs> an incomprehensible racket. I mean, there's no other word for it than just a racket. And I remember sitting there watching this thing. And just being sort of flummoxed as to what I was looking at. What I do, one of the things I also remember is Bob in the video has a guitar strap with a lightning bolt on it. And to my mind, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> like, the, like the closest I've ever come to picking up a guitar was that moment just because I want to have a lightning bolt guitar strap. I thought it was just the most amazing thing I've ever seen. So Bob and the band do this ear-splitting arrangement of masters of war now, and yes i don't think you really do it justice no it, well and the, the it, show was gonna i'm gonna end this episode with the audio from it so you'll be able to hear it if you don't go to anyway everybody should go to youtube and see the video too but um the, the audio will be in this episode as well it is um it's almost unlistenable to it uh there's uh, do you think there's that's how they rehearsed it i, I think, mean <laughs> i do okay and and you know because First of all, it is hard charging. I mean, you're oh, right to use the word punk. It's just like they are just pounding the music. 
And Bob is at his most bird-like. You know how sometimes he looks like a bird, like in the profile? And, and his voice is exactly what people mimic Bob as. When they, yes. make, they do a bad Bob Dylan impression, that's it. He's rolling the words around in his mouth. It is – again, I'm over there. I can't imagine what it must have been like to, to have been sitting there in the, the Shrine Auditorium or wherever the hell they were listening to this, this guy, this legendary guy come out and just – kick dust up off on the stage and he just goes balls out and the, the i forget who the i think it was uh justin jackson is playing the lead guitar and he has this great guitar solo and he they tear into it and it's just amazing and at the very end you see bob smile he's, like he's just having fun and, and tony garden is there of course yeah tony garden yeah you're right he's there of course so anyway so then they, they wrap up this version people are clapping because they're supposed to i think they're a little bewildered he walks over. Bob looks a little confused. Like maybe they didn't rehearse of where he was supposed to go. And then Nicholson hands him the award. He hands him this this plaque. And Bob stands there for a second. And I, I have this all committed to memory because I've watched it a thousand times. So Bob well, sits there. And, yeah. When he's standing there next to Jack Nicholson waiting to get this award, he's he's going back to his early 60s. He's standing there like Charlie Chaplin right. again. <laughs> he's like doing all these weird hand movements and he's <laughs> – around with his hat and then he takes a deep breath and he just kind of stands still like okay this is what i'm supposed to do yep. and him and jack nicholson exchange this weird smile yep. like, <laughs> what are you doing you know <laughs> it's great so he said there and he stands there and he looks at the he looks at the plaque and he says something yeah and then so then he says well you know my daddy he didn't leave me too much he was a very simple man he didn't leave me a lot but what he did say he said son he said uh and then there's this long pause, long enough that it becomes uncomfortable because you hear people in the audience start to start to titter a little because they're starting to worry. Did Bob just completely lose his train of thought? And then just at the right moment, Bob goes, he said so many things, you know, and he got this huge laugh. And it was like people remember people have to remember, like Bob Dylan is really funny. He can be really funny, and he is. You're talking about Chaplin. That is perfect comedic timing because he hit that right at the perfect moment where people were starting to feel uncomfortable. It was. It got a huge laugh, and then as the laughter is dying down, he says, "You know, son, it is possible to become so defiled in this world that your own mother and father will abandon you. Oh, abandon you, and if that happens, God will always believe in your ability to mend your own ways." Thank you. And he walks off. Yeah, walks off. He walks off. And people are just, what the hell was that? And so weird. I mean, yeah. And, you know, you're right. It's a hilarious comic timing when he makes that joke about his father. And I think on our last podcast, I was lamenting the fact that Bob Dylan at some point seemed to have lost his sense of humor. You know, he was very, he wrote some very funny songs and he was very funny. And that clip shows that he still he still got it. He still had it. Mm-hmm. That was it's very funny. But then to follow up that great joke with this like very strange and <laughs> evangelistic kind of saying. Like, did his father really say that? Right, uh, right. I'm betting he didn't. I'm betting that Abe Zimmerman, uh, the man who owned a hardware store in, in, in Hibbing, Minnesota, never said anything quite so profound to young Bob Dylan as that. But the thing that I'm the thing that I'm so amazed by was my my reaction in the moment and my reaction later on. And my reaction in the moment was my fandom for Dylan was still pretty new. 
and I was gobbling up all the records as I could get them. But I was still used to the idea that the songs, like a lot of other recording artists, the songs sound like what they sound like. You know what I mean? Like, I saw Billy Joel in concert a bunch of times. I love Billy Joel. I'm not going to front there. But Billy Joel sings his songs in concert the way he sings them on the record. That's what he wants to do. As we all know, Dylan doesn't do that. He doesn't give a shit. You know? He'll rip it up. He'd keep himself entertained. And I remembered thinking while I was watching that performance, wow, that this song that I know sounds like this now. And I remembered thinking that I guess everything is up for grabs when it comes to a Bob Dylan song. Like he himself can do this to his song. He can take this acoustic song and turn it into this thing. And it was exciting to me that like, wow, I don't need someone else to cover the song to hear it differently. He himself can cover it differently. And it was thrilling. It was really, really thrilling. And I did leave that performance bewildered. And I didn't understand what the, 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 the little speech at the end means. But over time, I have found that, to, first of all, a couple of years later, I saw an interview with Eric Clapton where he talks about it. And he said that he saw that. And he said, I think it's one of the most prof- profound things I've ever heard said on television. And I, I think about the idea of uh, you can be so defiled that your own mother and father will abandon you. But if that happens, God will always believe in your own ability to mend your own ways. To me, it's like that's the message Bob has been talking about for 50 years, which is everything you need you can find in yourself, you yeah. know? And and that's what that is. It's like you don't need anything else to save you. You can save yourself. And there he was saying it. Now, you can argue why was he saying that at the 1991 Grammy Awards, but nevertheless, he said it. And the other comment I have about it, and it was a – I forget who – I think it was somebody for Rolling Stone commenting at the time said you can argue – that the song was a racket and you can argue that it was incomprehensible and you can do it. You know, you can make all these criticisms, but in an evening full of really super rich people giving each other awards, Bob Dylan's version of masters of war was the one true moment of rock and roll abandon at the Grammy awards. I agree with that completely. He was, here was a guy who could just sing the song like you want him to hear you know, like you want to hear it, but he's not going to do that. He's going to come in and just blow the roof off the place. And it still, to this day, remains one of my favorite things ever uh, in my fandom of Bob Dylan. Now, I have to, I've been talking for a long time. Like, you came to this new. What was your reaction to it? Well, he's just challenging you. I mean, I picture if you're in that audience and, okay, he's going to play Masters of War, Probably the only version that you know is that acoustic version from right. Freeland. So this is just, you know, it just opens the door to, you're like you said, like this is, a that song on Freewheeling can sound like this? Yeah. And then if you put it in context, that Grammy in 1991 was the beginning of the first Gulf War. So yep. it became like a very, now it's a, a real anti-war song. And the way he's playing it, is you're right. It's like the pure spirit of rock and roll, where he's saying, "I'm on stage. I got a chance to reach an audience. I can't give up this opportunity. I have something to say. This song is still important. I'm going to do it my way." He, and then his line about being defiled in this world. First of all, it sounds like something from his born again Christian phase mm-hmm. was like eight years removed from, supposedly, but. 
the the thing that really struck me was he saying, if you become so defiled that your what is it, your mother and your father won't recognize you? They will abandon you. Your own mother and father will abandon you. Right. So think about how many people have abandoned Bob. All this like, you know, this is a guy who constantly is metamorphosing. He's adapting new personas. And so I think you're right. Like he, this is the the grand theme of his whole career is that um, I am going to be my own way. I'm going to strike a new path. Uh, I'm always going to be evolving. People are going to abandon me on the way. I, I will be unrecognizable to people who only know one aspect of my life. But then that but then the second half of that line. But then God will always show you the way, you know. Yeah, he will. God will. God will. God believes in you, which is such an inversion of what you're told ever since you're a child that you have to believe in God, and if you don't believe in God hard enough, God will get mad at you. And this is Bob flipping that script and saying, "No, no, no. God believes in you. You know, everything that you need is in you to do." And later on, I read an interview with Bob where they asked him about this, about like what what was all that about, and. In an unusual turn, he actually answered the question, and apparently the original idea was there was going to be a couple of musicians that were going to come on and sing Dylan songs. It was supposed to be a much longer sequence. Oh. And then, at, yeah, and then at the last minute, um, uh, they dropped out because apparently we were quite literally dropping bombs on Iraq in that point, and I guess there was some notion in the t- at the time of worrying about terrorists i i was 20 and completely oblivious to that stuff and so apparently these people sort of bailed on him at the last second and were like no nah, i don't want to fly across country i'm a little scared about this and apparently that pissed bob off a little bit and so he kind of went into this with this little bit of a chip on his sol- shoulder and kind of went into this version and i guess that's maybe was the inspiration for for rehearsing this with the band again I mean, we can only if you watch the band play it they look like they're having the time of their lives they are grinning ear to ear they really do look like a bunch of guys that just robbed a bank and now we're just I, singing this song it's it's really a gr- an amazing visual and it, it's almost misleading to call it punk because when i think of a punk version i think that the, i think of young people i think mm-hmm. of like now these are these are middle aged musicians, right? These are rich guys. These are wealthy guys. You know, Bob Dylan certainly, you know, <laughs> he's not hurting. And he, and he did play with almost a young punk band, I, I think, in like you know mid eighties or yes, something. when he owned, when he did the Letterman show, he played with the the Cruzados. Yeah, he, he literally was playing with punk guys. Now was he touring back then? Because when he got this Lifetime Achievement Award, he. Well, like what albums were out? World Gone Wrong? He or- what, no, the, he was touring. Uh, it's funny. If you look at uh, the, set, the the list of times played live on BobDylan.com, it does not list the Grammy Awards. Uh, this was February 20th, 1991, when he did it. Uh, he had been playing it in London, England at the Hammersmith Odeon. He had, a, he had a residence there just leading up to that. He played it pretty much every day. Um, okay. February 13th, 15th, 16th, 17th, 16th, and then not again for another couple of years. Uh, but no, actually, the, the closest release was a month after this was the Bootleg Series, Volume 1. Oh, it was the okay. beginning of the Bootleg Series came out. So no, he wasn't even pushing a record. It was the fact that he was turning 50, and it was, you know, this symbol of youth was turning 50. Oh, my God. And I think it was just, it was kind of just a... I mean, I, I think a lot of times when you get a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award, that's a headstone, 
You know, they're sort of saying, well, your best times are behind you. So let's give you the honorary thing now. And I, maybe Bob was chafing at that. And, of course, you look at it now and you're like, good Lord, that was 25 years. That was 30 years ago almost. And he, look at all the stuff he's done since. So, yeah, I mean, but there was, a gap. there was a big gap in original songs back then. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he did not have another original album until 96 or 97. 97, yeah. I mean, right. I mean, he was he was already... Uh, the, the, the 30th anniversary concert would be a year later and then he would do good as I've been to you and world gone wrong. And then, yeah, not, not, nothing until time out of mind until six years later. So yeah, this was this, he was more really a touring act. Uh, I'm not, I think he considers himself that now, but yeah, he didn't have anything new out. So he really was just kind of like, let's just celebrate the greatness that maybe was Bob Dylan, not right. is. And I, maybe Bob had felt like he had something to prove or something, but I mean, man, I just, and then, and then I just love this thing to death. I, I just find it so entertaining. It's my favorite version of the song. It really, really? Is. yes, because <laughs> it is just such a blast of energy. I mean, he doesn't sing all the verses. It's a much shorter version. It's only about three minutes and change. But I mean, I just love how. I, again, I can't. You, I just love how punk it is. I love how angry and crazy it is. Even is even if, as you say. He is rolling the words around, and it is tough to make out. You really do need to know the words beforehand. I remember watching it with my parents because I was home, I think, for, like, spring break. And my parents were just like, what the hell was that? Like, they were just completely flummoxed by it. And I didn't, I didn't exactly know what to make of it, but it just over time, I've grown to just absolutely love it. And that's, that's why it opens every show, that Nicholson speech, because I think it's some of the most profound words ever used to describe Bob Dylan, calling him a riot. I just I love right. everything about it. Yeah, me too. I love how Jack Nicholson do- doesn't take Dylan too seriously. Right. I mean, yeah. <laughs> there, there is a there. You know, there's a point where pe- people laud him and just like overpraise him. Yep. And it's nice to hear Jack Nicholson just say, "This guy's just a, a clown." Yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, a clown. Um, you know, the one phrase we're missing it to me. It, it screams "f you." It's mm-hmm. like you know, and that's like that part of that punk thing. It's just like "f you." This is my moment. I'm getting a lifetime achievement awards. This is what I decided. I'm still Bob Dylan. I'm gonna dis. I'm gonna just confound you, and, <laughs> you, and I'm still here. And, and you know, and I think even when the curtains rise, people are like standing up to clap. Yep, yep. And I'm sure they sat down real fast. Yeah. <laughs> this noise coming off the stage, and yeah. then and then of course the speech. You expect this great wordsmith. To get a lifetime achievement award for the Grammys, which I think he won one Grammy for "Gotta Serve Somebody." Yes. So this is an organization that hasn't really recognized um, a lot of his a lot of the same. I think he got best folk album for "World Gone Wrong." Anyway, so how did he not you know, win a Grammy for "Blood on the Tracks"? Dear, dear God. Right. <laughs> right. So, so you expect what? Like I was, I, I, I had not heard of this clip. So when he's about ready to give a speech, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm ready to take notes. This is going to be, this is the ultimate, the no, you know, the future Nobel laureate giving a lifetime achievement award speech. And boy, is he Bob Dylan during that? <laughs> I mean, he just, like, he, he just constantly. I, I hate to use the word disappointment because I'm not disappointed, um, but challenge. He's always challenging you. I was so delighted when I mentioned to you uh, on, uh, when I said, "Hey, man, 
because uh, it was the, it was coming out every February. It would roll around, and I would forget to do it. I wanted to do an episode on it in a, in February to mark some sort of anniversary. I didn't want to wait all the way till uh, 2021 for God's sakes. But I was every February I wanted to do it, and I'd forget. And then I realized when I asked you about it, and I was like, oh, I, I assumed you were familiar with it. And when you said, oh, no, I've never seen it, I was like, oh, I was so excited to share this. And somebody knew. I was like, oh, can't wait. Here, here's the clip. Just watch the whole thing. Because it is, it is confounding. It really is. It's just, you're just kind of like, what was that? And I just, I love that somebody as revered as him and, and as he could really just deliver the Bob Dylan show if he wanted to he could just give you what you want which is oh sing it the way i heard it and sing you know oh remember that great old song yeah no he's not going to do any of that whether it's the speech or making you feel uncomfortable because you think he's forgotten what he was about to say Uh, nothing he just is not interested in that and while sometimes that can be very frustrating you know like five sinatra records maybe you you take the good with the bad, you know, or not even the bad. You be t- you take it all in, and that's I just love that. I love that he was at fifty years old, where he, if he again, if yeah. he wanted to, he could have just become this sort of ossified yeah. idol that nobody would be scared of anymore. But nevertheless, like I said I, I would I would love to know if like, you had polled the audience after he left the stage. What did you just think of what you just saw? Like <laughs> what was that? Yeah, and I keep I, you know he's such an obstinate. Fella. Yes, like, he certainly is. You know, like, you just you feel like you, if you ask him to do something, he's just like, ah, I'll do it. yeah, sure, I'll do it. And then he just changes his mind or he <laughs> says, Yeah, I want to do it this way. <laughs> With no regard to am I delivering what people want? Nope. You know, he doesn't have that kind of like that Billy Joel kind of uh I love Billy Joel. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't get yeah, no no yeah, no criticism intended. Yeah, he's, he, but he's going to deliver the goods. He's going to give you what you paid for. But Bob Dylan, it's up in the air. And you and I think that's what separates the kind of, you know, deep fans that you and I are or, or other and other people that you share the podcast with, that um, the, the mystery is the man. And, and good luck trying to figure that one out. <laughs> yeah. I think I saw a quote from somebody. I forget who it was. Where they I, they may have even been referring to this moment where they said, "This is our this is our occasional reminder that Bob Dylan is one of the most deeply weird people to ever be this famous in America." And I think that's true. I think that's a true. Like he's just an odd guy. I think he's going to say and do. He's going to have reactions that are not what you necessarily expect. And he is somebody who has been a public figure. For 60 years now, which is just extraordinary when you think about that. And he's maintained. And yet most people, you know, you don't know what he does. You know what I mean? Like, what's his average day like? I guess he's just touring every day. He's on the bus somewhere. But, yeah, this thing, again, I have no musical talent at all. I can't. I don't know anything about music, as people who've listened to the show already know. I'm doing my best to kind of learn. I've never picked up an instrument. I've never had any great desire but that was the closest I've ever come because that lightning bolt guitar strap is just, I was like, this is just the greatest thing I've ever seen. And like, they're all wearing shades. Like they're inside, but they're on our stage. They're all got shades on. They just look like a bunch of hoodlums. I mean, they're like the Joker's gang or something from the dark Knight. I mean, it's just, I love everybody, everything about it. Everybody else in the audience is tuxedos. Yeah. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it also just reinforces that, uh, you know, a lot of his songs are mysterious. They're enigmas, but he's the ultimate. He's the ultimate mystery. He yep. like, and and even though it's completely out of the blue, what he does during this Grammy performance, there's there's enough 
connections to what's going on with the Gulf War, uh, this story of other musicians bailing out on him, uh, the whole idea that he's not really recording original stuff, where you, you almost feel like you could, you could you understand what he's thinking, mm-hmm. what decisions are. But in order to get there, you have to respond to a very obstinate and rebellious side in you. You know, mm-hmm. to say, and and the truth is, I would never have the nerve to do that. Nope, nope. <laughs> and not many people would. No, no. You want to, you want to, you want people to leave happy. You want to give them what they want. And like I said, he's just been doing this for so long, just kind of not caring about that. And he delivered this very unique moment in the history of of television, certainly in his career. And like I said, I, I, and the fact that it was my intro to. That Bob. version of Bob was so powerful to me. And so, I, again, there's there's been time. I've seen him 23 times in concert, and there's been times where he's done alternate versions of songs. And I go, yeah, that, that one didn't work. I saw I, – I remember one of my favorite songs from Time Out of Mind is um, Trying to Get to Heaven. And I saw him do a slow version of that in concert once, and I just went, yeah, no, that didn't work. I don't ever need to hear that again. But right. then we- but then there's other times where he, do, where he rearranges something, and I go, wow, that's interesting. So – Again, you get it's it's all about the experimentation, and so and again to do it in front of a crowd this size is gutsy. Now this is kind of a tangent, but when he won the Nobel Prize, and before he bailed out on actually accepting it in person, <laughs> right. another obstinate, just odd choice. Um, I when when I heard he won the Nobel Prize, I said, well, when he when he gets that award, the song he should sing is Masters of War, you know, because I just feel like that's. That that's one of his most important songs, and of course, you know this is all in my head. This is all in my daydream. I, you know, I daydream about Bob Dylan probably way too much. But <laughs> no, but in my daydream, he even confounded my daydream. He didn't even show up. You know? like, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, John, not gonna happen. Sorry, man. Okay, yeah. Bob, whatever. So, gonna do it. As soon as I heard he won the Nobel Prize, I was like, well, he's got to play Masters of War, you know, when he accepts it. Nope, 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 nope. So nope. So anyway, uh, yeah, that's uh, well, I, John. I mean, I'm glad that you checked it out. I'm glad I was able to introduce it to you. Anyone who has not seen it, again, you can go to YouTube. You can see the entire clip from Gary Shanley's intro all the way till the very end, till Bob just walks off stage with the with the Grammy with the award in his hand. Jack Nichols is laughing furiously. It's it's just amazing to me. And so uh, again, well, thank you, John, for for coming on, man. I'm glad we had a chance to. Uh, do a pod Dylan again, and I'm glad that we got to talk about a song that you love so much, and then a version that I am just, I just, I'm so beloved to me. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. That was a, that was a real gem. I thought I knew, I thought I knew it all. <laughs> so, yeah. Awesome. Well, anyway, again, thanks everybody for listening. Um, of course, if you want to find back episodes of the show, go to our website, FireWaterPodcast.com. You can also subscribe to the show on Stitcher and on iTunes. Please leave us an iTunes review if you're on iTunes. We would appreciate that. Um, we're always talking Dylan over on Twitter as well. And that's at pod underscore Dylan. So again, John, thank you so much for coming on. I look forward to having thanks. you back on. Okay. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and until the next episode, we will see you later. Bye. I'm your masters of war. Here that build the big guns. Here that build the death planes. Here that build all the bombs. Here that hide behind walls. Here that hide behind discs. I just don't want you to know I can see through your masks. 
You that never done nothing But build to destroy You play with my world Like it's your little toy You put a gun in my hand And you hide from my eyes And you turn and run farther When the fast bullets fly Like Judas of old You lie and deceive A world war can be won You want me to believe But I see through your eyes And I see through your brain Like I see through the water that runs down my drain Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan.
state of restlessness that has enabled you to seek newer and better means of expressing the human condition with words and music, for living your creative life fearlessly and without apology and leading the way no matter how the times change, the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences joins a worldwide network of grateful fans in presenting you this Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. Congratulations. Thank you. Well, um, all right. Yeah. Well, my daddy, he didn't leave me too much. You know, he's a very simple man, and uh, he didn't leave me a lot. But what he told me was this. He did say, son, he said, uh, He said so many things, you know. <laughs> he said, you know, it's possible to become so defiled in this world that your own mother and father will abandon you. And if that happens, God will always believe in your own ability to mend your own ways. Thank you.